Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. Please note that this episode covers a mental health issue in, in rather explicit detail. If you or someone close to you recently experienced one of these conditions, this content may evoke unaddressed pain. Our intention is to inform and empower our audience, but this material is not a substitute for therapy. Please use your discretion with regards to accessing this or other material on the site that may be triggering or traumatic for you. And remember that the best strategy is to seek professional assistance for unresolved painful or traumatic experiences that you may have undergone. We have included a link in the show notes where you can be connected to one of these therapists. In this episode of the show, we speak to Francesca Moresi about pranayama and breathwork from a psychotherapist perspective. Francesca Moresi, welcome to the show. So we're so Thank glad you. to have you on board. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here, Oliver. Yeah, I mean, really honored to have you on board. And and I just mentioned just before we started, I mean, you're one of the three practitioners that we've you know interviewed from the UK, where they have um, they have a, a title or they they also qualified in another country. And for you, that's Italy. Uh, really. Yes. Really interested to go into the story, but um, and uh, obviously as a psychologist and psychotherapist in the in the UK and a clinical psychologist in Italy, but um, can you tell us um, what a what a psychologist, psychotherapist, and maybe even a clinical psychologist does just to kick of it course. off? Absolutely. So um, again, the system in Italy and in the UK are a little different. So what a psychologist does in the UK. Um, is different from what I have trained to do in Italy, right? In the sense that in Italy, you have to train as a psychologist first, and then you become a psychotherapist. But, but that's not necessarily the case in the UK. So in the UK, I mainly work as a psychotherapist, which means I meet uh, clients, I work privately, I have my own practice, and my job is to guide people through understanding what's happening in their lives, close any unfinished business, and actually um, understand more about themselves, about their emotions, and bring any change that they need to bring in order to live their life at their full potential. Does that make sense? It's very much in a nutshell, of course. Yeah, I mean, four hours just about that. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, uh, I think for anyone that's familiar with, you know, psychologist or, I mean, I think, you know, like then they would, you know, they would definitely understand that. And I think, you know, um, you're right. I mean, in the UK, the, the system is different. But I mean, it doesn't matter what variation of psychologist you are. I mean, you are exactly as you said just now, you know, how you help people which is amazing. Yes, and mainly, you know, my role is to guide them. We never advise, uh, we never tell them what to do, but rather we help them understand uh, their path. So mm. we, we ask, I ask a lot of questions in order for people to understand their own answers. Yeah, I love that. And in terms of the topic, uh, I told you as well, very, you know, it's amazing how these topics come up. But, uh, you know, when I went out to your website, and obviously, our team spoke to you, you know, just before the show, you know, to get you on board. And, um, you know, the, the topic we're talking about is pranayama and breath work, and how does it relate to therapy? Very, very interesting topic. And I'm going to let you introduce it because, you know, obviously, you're going to do a better job than I do. But can you tell us what that means? And why is it so important? that you actually, you know, you, you, I wouldn't say specialize, but you definitely have a lot more work that you do with clients around this. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, two years ago, I actually trained to become a pranayama teacher because in the past uh, almost 10 years of my life now, I've done a lot of breath work and that's been really helpful to me to change the way I feel. And that's exactly where the connection lies. Um, the breath um, is strictly connected to the way we feel. And when we change the way we breathe, we can actually change how we feel. Now, uh, if that's okay, I'd like to, um, to say what pranayama means, right? Pranayama is a Sanskrit word. Prana means uh, um, life force, right? It's the life energy that we all have in our body and that the yogis identified as the breath. Yama means control or manipulation. So pranayama is manipulation of the breath to actually harness and uh, 
um, um, fuel the, the, the vital energy in our body. So when the breath is flowing correctly and deeply, that's when our life force energy, the universal energy, as the yogis would say, runs through us and we feel good, right? We feel energetic. Now, there's a difference between pranayama and breath work because pranayama is, represents this very ancient um, way of manipulating the breath that is very paced and controlled, whereas breath work refers to any form of, you know, uh, conscious breathing, but it doesn't have to be paced or it doesn't have to be spiritual mm, as pranayama can be. So we could say that all pranayama is breath work, but not all breath work is pranayama. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, the next obvious question would be, you know, what is pranayama then? You know, and if we could just go oh. a little bit deeper Absolutely. in terms of that. Um, pranayama is every sequence that is paced and control of the breath. So I'll give you an example. Pranayama could be, I ask you to inhale for four, and I ask you to then exhale for eight, right? You're going to control your breath. You're going to give it a pace in a very controlled way. This is one of the most simple pranayama that I could teach you. And that's exactly what pranayama is then we can go, it can actually be very complicated because the manipulation of the breath can be sometimes even a little bit extreme, but there are, of course, many degrees. And that's exactly what pranayama is because, you know, there's been a lot of research around breath, the breath. And now we know, first and foremost, that the breath is linked to the nervous system and in particular to the autonomous nervous system. The inspiration is linked to the sympathetic nervous system and the expiration to the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic is the fight or flight response. Mm. Okay, so it means that through the manipulation of the in-breath, we can actually regulate our fight or flight response. And during the exhalation, through the vagus nerve, we can actually activate the parasympathetic nervous system, calming the system down. As you can imagine, the implications are very huge because through breathing, we can actually turn on and off the response of the nervous system. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, obviously, I didn't know anything about this, and I didn't even know this is a term. But when I when I used to be in corporate, you know, I was in the IT industry, and um, before we would go into any any difficult uh, meeting, you know, especially with the executives, those were always difficult meetings. Um, my mentor at that time, or you know, manager. Uh, he always said, okay, we're doing breathing exercises before <laughs> we would do it for five minutes. And immediately, you know, we would yeah. de-stress, you know, before we get into the meeting, a lot more composed and stuff like that. And that's, that's the first time I actually heard of, you know, like using yeah. breath to control your almost emotions or your, you know, state of being. Yes. And thank you for actually mentioning emotions because, you know, that that's the second part of it. Uh, research shows that, uh, any emotion is actually linked to a particular breathing pattern. Think about it. When we sigh, we're normally quite sad. Mm? Mm. When we punt, we feel anxious or we feel, for example, you know, excited. Mm? When we um, grumble, we feel irritated. When mm. we yawn is because we feel bored, right? Or tired. So research has shown a, um, a link, sorry, between uh, the way we breathe and emotions. Not only that, research has shown that when we manipulate the breath, we can actually change the emotion that we feel. So there is a link not only, you know, to the fight or flight system, to the autonomous nervous system, but also to the emotions that we feel. And that's exactly why breath work or pranayama is so important in my field. Because what I do is all about supporting people in changing the way they feel. They come here and they feel sad or depressed or anxious. Almost everyone feels anxious. So this is a beautiful, powerful tool that I always teach my clients to support themselves in their journey. 
That is actually so powerful because I mean, you know, when we were talking about emotions, you know, people always associate color, you know, so they say, you know, about oh. color, you know, like if you in a, you know, blue room, you know, it's much more calming, you know, rather than yeah. an orange one, they use music, but it's the first time to my knowledge, you know, that, that I'm speaking about, you know, using like breath, you know, because I, I would ask the question, for instance, I w- if I want to go into creative mode, right? So like, uh, I want to, I want to design something now. You know, is there like a breath sequence that probably would put me in the best, you know, frame of mind, you know, to be able to do that? Or I want to get it into depends. intense work. It depends. What is the emotion that you link uh, to creativity? Uh, maybe playful, you know, free. Um, yeah. For example, you know, um, research shows that when we feel, uh, you know, happy in a calm way, that's actually associated with a very regular Uh, way of breathing so Mm. for example mm, that could be um, a good a good way to enter into that state into that calm you know um, happiness or probably I would even say feeling content it's actually associated with a very regular um, way of breathing okay it would really depend you know because I'm also now thinking of uh, something called uh, uh, breath of fire that is something that would stimulate um, your third chakra. Mm? Mm-hmm. And that's also something that I think could help you in that state. It's actually the first time that someone asked me such a specific question, so I'd have okay. to look into it. But mm. it's, it's like the center of our power right here in the belly. And when we fire that up with this breath called breath of fire, I think that could also support you in in your creative um, state yeah I, i'm just thinking of something tangible obviously you know with me as a you know like how i work as well but you know people are, you know got the academics you get the business you get the you know just normal dealing with people kind of thing and for each one of those those areas in life you know during your day like it is with everyone you know when, when you with your family you want to you know there's a certain zone you need to be in as well uh, you know, you can't take the work stuff into that. And I was thinking as you start each phase, you know, in your day, it's almost like having like a like a tangible, because they always say you have to zone into the moment, you know, so yeah. if you're doing academic work, you know, you can't, you can't just turn it, I find it with software development as well, you can't just turn it on and turn it off, you know, it's not like I can just go do five minutes of software development and then, you know, move away, you have to be zoned in. And what you're saying is maybe another way for anyone listening to this, you know, is another way that you can tap into that, you know, and and zone in like meditation probably can do for you and stuff like that. Well, it's so interesting, again, that you say that because the other thing, one of the benefits of breath work is that it helps you be more mindful. Mm -hmm. So when you pay attention to the breath, it's actually linked to you becoming more mindful. And that's exactly what breathwork does. It helps you be more focused because in order for you to control your breath, you have to be aware, you have to be present. And that in time will also increase your ability to be aware in other areas of your life and to zoom in in a certain situation. And if you don't mind, I'd like to link here another piece of information because not everyone knows that Unfortunately, growing up, we actually lose our ability to breathe correctly. In the sense that, I don't know if you've ever seen a baby, right? When a newborn is breathing, do you know that? I don't know if you have this image, but I know how their belly keeps rising and falling, rising and falling, right? And that's exactly how we are born, with that full ability to actually breathe and expand the lungs, when we grow up, we kind of lose that ability and we only use at the very most two thirds of our lung capacity. And that has a lot of repercussions. Now that can be, for example, because, you know, uh, our culture um, suggests that, you know, if we are more attractive, if we have a flat belly, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And therefore we'll lose that ability to breathe because we want to keep it in. Mm. That's just one of the reasons why that happens. But the point is that as grown-ups, we don't use our lungs at their full capacity. And that has a lot of repercussions, again, on the way we feel, because, you know, that means that we're not not able to actually activate 
the parasympathetic nervous system that increases the stress level that is linked to less oxygen uh, being sent not only in the muscles or in the blood, but also to the brain. And that's when we lose focus, that when we uh, are not able to be mindful. So to learn to breathe correctly links to better health, better immune system, being able to be mindful. The, the breath is connected to so many things. Mm. And, and you know, so again, what's so intriguing about this discussion, it's something that everyone can control. You know, like, like the monetary thing we can't control sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, it's like if you want to go for therapy every single day, I mean, meeting with, a, with someone in independent practice is probably going to be out of the realm of possibility for many people, you know, like, but, and the same with, with resources, you know, like if we said, okay, you need a perfect room to do this, but the breath, everyone can control, you know, like everyone. in your environment right now, you can do that wherever you are, you know, in the wherever world. you are, absolutely, even with your eyes opened if you think about it. Mm. And if you think about it, the, 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 the breath is the only autonomous system of the body that we can control. So, mm. you know, digestion will, will just run, we cannot control it. Our heart will keep beating, but we cannot control it, and so on and so forth with so many autonomous functions, right? But the breath, we can control. If we forget about it, we will still breathing, it's autonomous, we can also control it. It's amazing. Mm, that is true. I never thought of it like that, actually. Uh, but it's it's actually amazing. I mean, also, you know, for me, through the, the many episodes and speaking to psychologists like yourself and other practitioners, you know, understanding about the subconscious and the unconscious system and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, you don't think about it, you know, growing up, uh, but it's actually so powerful, you know, how the body is. And what you said is, I mean, you know, the, the few things that we can control, I mean, with breath being one of them, is like, you know, oh, the only one, um, you know, we, we should actually use that opportunity. So everything runs, you know, like clockwork. Um, yeah. I must say, when you were talking about the children and, and breath work, you know, the image that I have in my mind is uh, like a two-year-old th throwing a tantrum, you know, <laughs> almost like empty out everything in their lungs, <laughs> you know, to throw that tantrum. Uh, yeah, and I know that, especially in the UK, I know that uh, um, there are some programs uh, to teach uh, breathwork uh, um, to children in, I think, primary school. Hmm. And I really like that. It's an amazing project, and I think it's very powerful. Very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, many things in the UK have actually taken me by surprise, especially around the schooling system. Mm. Uh, my daughter was doing like, you know, topics around social justice as well. As an Wonderful. You know, and I'm thinking that is amazing. You know, That's the, so the, cool. You know, that you can start them on that level, starting to just have the conversation or be yeah. you know, consciously aware of stuff like that. Um, because, you know, like once you're at varsity or, or you're at uni and, you know, later on in life, I mean, lots of those patterns are already developed and then you have to work with amazing people like yourself, you know, to undevelop, you know, some of those preconceptions that you have. But if you started young, you know, it's, it's a really good thing. Yeah. Um, the other topic, and, and I didn't introduce it, you know, around this, but um, is changing the narrative. And, and uh, you know, when, when I saw, when, you know, when I saw the stuff that the amazing stuff that you're doing, you know, there's so many different ways that, are, you know, we could have, you know, approached it. But I thought, you know, the breathwork one for me is such a unique one, especially from a psychologist. I've, you know, like I've, I've, we've done mindfulness. I think we mm -hmm. had Kathy Jenks, you know, from South Africa talking about that. I thought that was an amazing, you know, conversation. You know, like she spoke about, you know, breathing as well, but not someone that, that goes as much into detail as, as you have, especially with the pranayama, you know, mm -hmm. aspects to it. But the other one that you talk about, which is changing the narr narrative. And I think that for me is so powerful because yeah. lots of people, like, doesn't matter where you are. I mean, like whether you're in the UK, you know, first world country or you're in, you know, South Africa, third world country, people seem to be stuck in this way that this is how it is. You know, like this is, you know, unfortunately, this is how it is. If we're we doomed. Change, yeah, exactly. You know, like, doesn't matter what we do, you know, like, doesn't matter who we vote for, do, doesn't matter, you know, we're always going to be stuck in this scenario. And I, and I find for me, that is, 
I mean, like it's 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 refreshing to hear someone like yourself talking about changing their narrative. So, can you tell us what that means, and and how do you help clients around that? Yeah, with pleasure, because that's actually you know one of the things that I've worked on the most in the past few years. I've actually written a book about it. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so far the book um, is only in Italian. It'll be published actually on September fourteenth. I'm very excited about it, um, and. Um, I'm going to translate the title that I uh, gave in Italian, and it's going to be the art of rewriting your own story or your own narrative. And, you know, I think I wrote that book both as a psychotherapist, of course, but also as a person who has changed her narrative. I myself have done a lot of therapy. I have been in some form of therapy since the age of 20, maybe three years old. I am 39 now, and I think it's been amazing to, to notice how, I, how much I've changed and how much, you know, um, my life has changed as a result. So the point for me is that, as you were saying, we are indeed stuck. And I normally talk about having a script. That's why in therapy, I often ask my clients, you know, if you were a character, in a play, in a movie, in a book, um, or maybe, you know, a mythological character, who would you be? Who would represent hmm, your story? And one of the examples that I give in the book that I like to report here because it's very powerful is this woman who told me that she felt as if she was a Sisypho. Now, I understand, I don't know how to translate that in English now, I'm so sorry, but Anyway, Sisypho is a character from uh, Greek mythology, and uh, he dared, uh, you know, challenging the gods, and as a punishment, he has to carry a very, very heavy stone on his back, bring it on a mountain, and then the moment he gets there, and he could be free, the rock rolls back down, and he has to start mm. again, and that's never-ending. And she told me that she felt like this character because, you know, she was always helping her family. She didn't have her own life. She didn't have her home, her partner. She was just, you know, giving all her energy to her siblings and her parents. And it felt like never ending, always carrying someone else's weight. Now, that image to me is very powerful in representing this concept, this has been her narrative until she came to therapy. And so that would it, that's what it means to change the narrative, to literally, you know, identify what's your story, what are the patterns that you keep repeating without sometimes even being aware of it. And you repeat it over and over again, and you feel very stuck. I myself, for example, identified in the role of the victim for many years. and. The repercussions that had on my life were actually very intense because, you know, when you go through life thinking that you are a victim, the world is a very scary place and you constantly feel disappointed, you constantly feel let down because you become a victim of every single dynamic. And it was only when I was able to get rid of that dynamic that I could, it's as if, you know, I was wearing a different pair of glasses. Right. And suddenly life was, you know, an opportunity and, you know, I could trust people and I could trust, um, you know, opportunities. And it's been amazing. So that that's what it means to know that change is a possibility. Mm, I love that. I mean, uh, you said glasses as well. You know, the term I used was, you know, you change the lens, you know, like you just put a different yes. lens on and you can see better or you see in a different yeah. color or whatever that is. Uh, and that is really powerful. I mean, I think it's uh, a good analogy as well. You know, like uh, I don't think I've heard it like that. You know, where you pick a character and you you kind of identify with that character, which is a really powerful way to you know to explain it. You know, to people. Yes, because when they when they're able to understand, right, identify, sorry, the character, that's when they see it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's when they really understand the extent of uh, of it um it's yeah 
it's very important. And then, you know, we work uh, on many different levels to change that, right? One of them is the physiological level, because, for example, if there are levels of anxiety, we work with the breath to reduce that and to control that. But it's um, very much a work on emotions. We learn to regulate emotions and to change the communication with other people. And then we work on a cognitive level to identify the limiting beliefs mm. that uh, are linked to our role. Like, for example, you know, if I am a victim, my limiting beliefs could be no one loves me. Everyone wants to hurt me. And those limiting beliefs actually represent the lens. Mm. Mm. That's how we constantly read everything that happens to us. Mm -hmm. So we identify those beliefs and we try to change them. We try to find alternative beliefs uh, that can explain the situation, but not be, but not trigger such painful emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, I think you, you mentioned the word patterns as well. And yes. anyone that hasn't been in therapy, you know, this is a is a key one. I mean, I love the fact that you've been in therapy for such a long time. And, you know, I think, um, and, and we covered this many times in different episodes, but, you know, the point is that most people don't prioritize themselves. And, you yeah. know, that's a, that's a given, you know, like it, it's like, you don't, don't want to spend the money on yourself. You don't want to spend the time on yourself. You don't want to spend the resources, all of those things. And I think what therapy does is it forces you in that 45 minutes or one hour to prioritize yourself, you know, like it doesn't matter, you know, because there's no one else in the room, you, you there. And I think the other role of the therapist that I've found is that that person has your back, you know, they, the one that, you know, is in your camp doesn't matter what happens in your family life, doesn't matter what happens at work, but that person in that role is the person that has, you know, your best interest at heart. And I find that's quite, you know, quite uh, relieving, you know, like in terms of, yeah. of thinking about it. And that is exactly why sometimes when I notice that people come to therapy just because so they can say, oh, you know, I went to therapy, but they're not prioritizing themselves, I'll ask them to, right? Because I've noticed that sometimes for people, that's enough to bring themselves to therapy, but they then struggle to engage in the process. Mm. The mm. fact that they go to therapy, you know, it's a justification, you know, I'm going to therapy, right? So to themselves, it's like, I'm paying for it. I'm actually, you know, doing, uh, spending the time, but I'm not doing the work. Mm. And so I think um, that's my job sometimes, uh, having their best interest at heart, to push them a little bit, or at least, you know, to make them notice that that's happening in the, in the room. And then it's their choice whether to engage or just, you know, finish. Mm. I love that too. And I think, um, yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, learning more about therapists and, you know, the different modalities and stuff like that, you know, people always seem to have that impression, you know, that, that therapists just listen. But I think what you just said now is like, there's therapists as well that really push, you know, push you to get better because I, I think you said it perfectly, you know, people, it's almost like a checkbox exercise, you know, it's like, yes, I'm, well said. <laughs> I'm going for therapy. Okay. Now magically things are going to change, but any work is difficult and work on yourself is, I mean, I'm sure it's the most difficult. Anyone that wants to, like you said earlier, get a flat stomach would, would agree yeah. on that, you know, how much of work that is, yeah. you know, but. Yes. And, you know, um, I was thinking when you said push, I said push in the first place. I think um, our role is to really understand the, the right balance between pushing, but not pushing too much, because you also want to be very respectful mm -hmm. of each person's resistance. We all have some form of resistance and that's fine. But um, one of the comments that many clients have uh, shared with me is that, yes, I can be really challenging. And I think that's definitely part of my approach and the way I work because I myself have been challenged by my therapists and that's what made a difference. Mm. And, you know, of course there are many different ways to do it and you need to be more careful with people who are more sensitive with some people you can use humorism and that's going to work fantastically. Some other people may feel very hurt because you, they could think that you're laughing at them. So you just need to be very careful how you do it. But yeah, I think 
my responsibility is to find that sweet spot between, you know, pushing and respecting the resistance so that it's constantly, you know, pushing them forward a little bit, but with respect. Mm, well said. Yeah. And, and that's why it's not a, uh, you know, the other term I, I learned, you know, with me, with, with practitioners is it's not a cookie cutter approach. You know, it's not one approach for everyone. That's why you don't buy the system no. online, you know, like that's going to tell you how to be amazing because Absolutely. Not like that. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, I mean, I think with therapists, you're getting like an individual approach, you know, it's not just one blanket approach, which I find quite nice. And I, I think you, you know, you, you explained that perfectly like the resistance part, you know, and, and also understanding the person, you know, and how you can do that. Because I think pushing is, you know, in their best interest, because if you're seeing the patterns, because as me, you know, the person going for therapy, I can't see the patterns, you know, I would love to see the patterns. But yeah. until someone points out, actually, you know, you've done this three years ago, and this is how it went out. And now you're doing the same thing again, guess how it's going to play out. I think yeah. just someone pointing that out normally is like a light bulb moment. Do you find that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my job to help people um, raise their awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's uh, what we could call sometimes, um, I think in English, it would be a haha moment, right? Oh, yes. That moment where, oh, goodness, <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. And um, do, you, do you find, and I ask this question from a different angle now, yeah. if someone is struggling with, you know, changing their narrative as loved ones, you know, friends, family, is anything that we can do to help them? I mean, obviously, we have our own dramas as well. You know, so, but, but normally, you know, people come to you and they ask you, you know, for help, or, or they say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this amazing therapist at the moment. And I'm really struggling, you know, to, to, to change my life around, you know, I seem to be getting into the same things. Is there something that you would do would tell, you know, loved ones around that person? Yeah, I think that for loved ones, it's not necessarily something easy, because, you know, what does it mean for me to know that someone I love is changing? Hmm? Is that a threat? Does that mean that our relationship is going to change? So I think that if we want to support someone in changing, we need to understand, first of all, how we feel about it. Hmm? And how uh, does that impact, uh, you know, uh, the relationship we have with that person and the way we feel? We also can actually look at how we enable hmm? the pattern that the person wants to change. Because if you think about it, many times we behave in a certain way and other people enable that behavior for us. And so we need to understand not only a single behavior, but rather the, the dynamic between two people and how those behaviors meet and create the pattern. So if we really want to help a loved one, we need to understand what is it that we do to support or not that behavior and understand if we're happy to change the pattern and to help someone we love in that process. Mm, I like that. Um, I, and I go back to your earliest, you know, about the patient, you know, always supporting family. So, you know, and we had someone uh, another psychologist on, you know, talking about like intergenerational trauma, you know, you're always stuck yeah. in this, you know, way of doing stuff. And, and it's almost the family creates this environment where it perpetuates, you know, it, it keeps on happening. And yeah. so I think as loved ones, it's almost like understanding your role and then obviously not being, um, uh, what's the word, too, too inflicted, too hurt you know, by the fact that you're playing some role with that. And I think exactly. that's obviously quite difficult to do. Yes, in fact, many people would actually create obstacles to the change. When a family member starts to change, they can be shamed, for example. Mm. Sometimes they're even labeled as crazy or, you know, there's a form of gaslighting towards them because it's very threatening. Mm. Because what's the implication? Does that mean that I was not a good mother? Does that mean that I failed or I made mistakes? And not many people are actually able to honestly uh, support the, a loved one in their process of change because of the implications. Yeah, well said. I mean, that's something I, I picked up and I didn't realize how difficult this is. Uh, you know, when we first put that question into the brief, it was more like, um, 
you know, especially like, so for instance, like addiction, you know, like, you know, mm. helping the person, you know, not being exposed to that. But, you know, over the, the many times I've asked the question, I've actually started seeing it in different aspects. And I think this is a good example of that, you know, how loved ones, it's ac actually understanding how, how threatened you're going to be about the fact that someone is trying yeah. to change narrative, uh, which is think interesting. About, think about codependency in romantic relationships. One of the uh, most frequent pattern is that there is um, one of the two who is trying to save, right, the other one. But if, for example, the person who is more passive and that's the one who, you know, is always very needy and more vulnerable and needs that help that the other partner is providing, if they start to change, if they start to be more independent, that would definitely put the relationship at risk. Mm. And the other person could could feel like, okay, what does that mean? Do you not love me anymore? Am I not needed anymore? And if I'm not needed, am I lovable? So, yeah, I think it's very complex and uh, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of awareness and reflection. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, and that's a credit to you, you know, you being a, a psychologist and psychotherapist is, is you get to see the lives of other people, you know, from a real lens, you know, like these are real people, you know, real stories, you know, real emotions and, and getting to help them, you know, in those, in those circumstances, uh, which it's is incredible. It's such a privilege. Yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's such a privilege, you know, to have that trust um from people and they literally welcome you right mm. in their life and they show it to you and you don't know how many times people have said to me i've never told this to anyone yeah i'm sure it's such a privilege to yeah. witness and honestly in my clinical work i have learned so much about human life it's a very privileged perspective yes yeah yeah, you know, that's an, and that's another reason. I mean, as I've done, you know, the many episodes, I've actually realized that there's a story to be told about, about choosing being in the healthcare, you know, practitioner space, you know, for, for aspiring people, uh, or aspiring, you know, youngsters, or people choosing to go to university. Because I think it's, you know, it's this common, common, um, you know, common story that if you're a healthcare practitioner, you know, you're not going to earn well, you're not going to, you know, you're always going to be self-serving, you know, you're, you're always going to be... I would probably say that that's a limiting belief. Yeah. Going exactly. back to what we were saying before. <laughs> of course, you know, it's not probably the easiest job to become uh, super mm. wealthy. I would agree with that. Mm. But, you know, there are a lot of limiting beliefs as well around it. You know, you can just do well and uh, there are a lot of, lots of opportunities. Sorry, I interrupted you, but... No, no, no. <laughs> I just had to. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think every healthcare practitioner would would automatically agree that it's not for the money. Like I think that's not that's for the a money. Good one. But I think what you said, and you know what people should get a sense of is is how powerful. You know, because job satisfaction is a major thing. You know, if you can, again, checkbox exercise, if you can checkbox that, you know, in your life, I think that would make you a happier, more content person. And I've yet to meet a healthcare practitioner that's told me actually, I regret being whatever practitioner they are in, you know, like whether that's a physio, a psychologist, you know, an OT, you know, like they normally seem to be happy with the choices and what they're doing, you know, from a work point of view, whether it's working at the NHI, you know, everyone wants more money, obviously, <laughs> but whether it's working at the NHI, independent practice, you know, like for a charity, we've had, you know, a art therapist, you know, on working at the charity, doing amazing work, you know, in the UK, you know, very happy with the, with the work that she's doing, which is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, to me, that's absolutely true. I feel very content in my job. And I remember having this discussion a couple of years ago with some friends. We were actually on vacation and we were in front of the sea and my friends were actually making fun of the hashtag, you know, uh, love my job. And they were saying, who loves their job? You know, I can't think of anyone. I said, well, I love my job. <laughs> I'm really happy what I do. And that's very true. Um, I also believe, uh, I mean, not believe because, you know, that's actually data. Research shows that, unfortunately, that the, the help uh, professions uh, are also linked to the higher level of stress and burnout. So as much as we love our job, we need to be careful not to overdo it and to be supported. Yes, we need to go through supervision, we need to take breaks, we really need to do it well. Otherwise, yeah. we won't be helping anyone. 
Yeah, no, no, agreed. I think we've veered a little bit, but uh, you know, we'll keep it for the next show as well in terms of how do you become a better healthcare practitioner. But I started it, so uh, all good. Right. I, I love the conversations at all. But in terms of of uh, pra other practitioners, uh, do you work in a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team? Um, I mean, what I mean by that is, do you find that you know when you're working with a patient, you know, they also seeing other practitioners, maybe a dietitian. Sometimes, yes, yes, indeed. Sometimes I have, and that's also the reason why I told you that I uh, have been in some form of therapy for the past almost twenty years because I like to try everything I suggest to my clients. Right? I don't like to just say, oh, do this or do that, and I don't know what, what I'm talking about. So that's the reason why uh, I've done so much therapy, mm -hmm. because um, one thing that I understood very early stage is that um, psychotherapy is a talking therapy, right? Mm -hmm. But mind and body are the same thing, right? The body is the mind and vice versa. So we need to work on the body as well. So I've done a lot of, for example, deep... Uh, tissue massage and I think I'm not even I'm so sorry perhaps that's not the, the the correct name but so we now have some form of massage that is actually able to release uh, emotions from the cells of the body and these are emotions that sometimes we're not even aware of you need to remember that for the first two years of our life we cannot build an episodic memory so everything that happens then goes straight into the subconscious we have no way to say it and so there's so much that's happening there that goes directly into the cells of the body so you can work with a somatic coach you can work with energetic uh, work you can do acupuncture uh, i have a chinese doctor that i refer people to uh, an acupuncturist a craniosacral an, oste an osteopath um, a nutritionist. Very recently, I started to work with a nutritionist who's also a naturopath. Mm -hmm. Is that how you say it in English? Thank you. And so, yeah, I got quite a few therapists that I like to refer people to just to make sure that their needs are fully supported. Okay. Brilliant. I mean, uh, uh, it's. I think you covered it really nice. You, you're actually the second practitioner in a few weeks that I've actually said that about the, the massage. And oh, yeah. I don't think I've heard that from many practitioners, but in, in coincidentally, both we're from the UK, but the, you know, the it's, it's about, um, and she said it nicely. She said also, she said, it's like removing the toxins in your body. You know, yes, like, I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, like, so she prioritizes herself and she, you know, advocates for her clients, you know, to do similar because you're working with the mind, you may be getting rid of the toxins, but the body, you know, it's, as you said, you know, it's sitting in the cells. How do you get rid of that? Yes. You know, that like exercise or, you know, do it quite religiously, you know, would advocate for that. But there's, you know, there's different aspects to approaching it. Yes, there, there are, there's something that, I mean, I'm a huge fan of sport in mm -hmm. general, and uh, sometimes that's exactly what I suggest to my clients, but that's not enough. Now, here we're talking about something that has been stored in the body for a really long time, and it's, it's not that you can just uh, let go of it by doing sports. But talking of detoxifying, guess what helps detoxifying the body as, as well? The breath. 70% of the toxins of the body can actually be released throughout the breath, especially, you know, when we do deep, uh, long uh, breath, that's very helpful. So that's yet another connection and yet another very helpful aspect of the breath. Okay, really nice. And um, for coming back to, you know, like yeah. full circle to the breath part, is so if someone heard this and they said i'm really interested you know like so you know i want to learn more about you know like pranayama and and stuff like that is are there resources that you normally point your clients to or that you advocate for yeah there is a book i made a note about it because yeah i wanted to mention it um, one second um james nestor um he is the author of a book called breath the new science of a lost art. And I like it because it's very scientific. There's a lot of research in it. And I think it could be, you know, a, a nice tool for people to um, get accustomed to this idea that breath can be a powerful tool. 
Okay. Really good. I mean, we'll, we'll add the links to the show, uh, to the show notes, but um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, you know, you mentioned that it has a very spiritual connection. And I think, you know, depending on who you are, you know, some people might not have that. So would you say that, that it's not a limiting factor, the fact that you're not too spiritual, that you would still that you're not what, sorry, too? Not spiritual? Or would you still find value no. in Pranayama? No, 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 absolutely. I mean, of course, pranayama comes from the yogic um, world, right? It's very ancient, it's very sacred in a way, but you don't have to be a yogic to do it or to do some breath work. You know, it's, it's scientific research nowadays that points uh, to breath work as, you know, a, a brilliant method to actually change the way you feel. So no, not at all. You don't have to be spiritual. Okay, that's cool. Um... And also, would you, would clients finding you or uh, you? It, I'm I'm assuming that they don't come in and say, you know, I need help with pranayama or I need help with breathing or no. changing my narrative. How, how do they normally find you, or how do they normally enter your you know your world of therapy? Mostly, it's either about uh, um, sorry uh, throughout um, word of mouth. Okay. Uh, sorry, I had it on, on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about it. So either that or my website. Okay. That's yeah. Good. I'm also listed in a few directories, but I can see that most of uh, the requests actually come through my website. And then, you know, when I, the first time I noticed that they're, they're holding the breath mm -hmm. and that happens a lot, mm -hmm. I would probably say you're holding the breath, just start breathing again. <laughs> and I introduce the subject. Okay, that's, that's okay, actually a really common. smart way of doing it. Yeah. You know, especially if you're aware, you know, and psychologists obviously are aware, you know, depending on how you, you know, looking away or something, you can obviously read the signs a little bit better. Um, so yeah, that's, that's actually a really smart way to do it. Um, I must say on your website is really nicely done. So whoever did that. Thank you. Know. you. Yeah, you know, it articulates it nicely, and, and that's why even... I did it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Everything you see in there is something I've written, yeah. Okay, yeah. That, it's I've chosen the pictures, that. yeah. Yeah, it speaks to that, yeah. So so even when we were, you know, deciding on a topic, I was like, you know, when I went out to your website, it was very easy to put the connections together and see, ah, oh, that's kind of mm -hmm. interesting, you know, and uh, I find normally, uh, you know, it's very generic, you know, I find, you know, many practitioners, when they come up with a website, you can almost see that it's not them that did it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so like, you know, lots of the things are very generic, but I, I found your one pretty, pretty useful. Well, thank you. That's actually very nice feedback. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, you're welcome. Um, and in terms of, of um, ethical considerations, is there yes. anything around that that you, you, know, you think we should be aware of, you know, especially with working with the types of clients that you're working with, especially working in this type of area around changing the narrative? I think you touched on it a little bit, you know, in terms of not putting too much of pressure. That is an ethical kind of part. Is there anything else that kind of comes to mind? Well, when it comes to the breath, it's more about understanding if there is any maybe, you know, physical condition that could interfere, like, for example, very low blood pressure, very high blood pressure, uh, heart diseases. It, you know, it's very rare, but sometimes, you, especially, well, if you do the basics, that's fine. But if you do something a little bit more complex, you just need to be aware of um, the state of the body of the person. And with regards to changing the narrative, I think, you know, it, the uh, ethical framework of psychotherapy generally applied to that, right? You having your boundaries, uh, respecting those boundaries and doing your work ethically is just, is just enough. There's nothing uh, in particular that you should be aware, I think. As long as you respect the ethical framework, you'll be fine. Okay, that's that's always good to know, and uh, you know, talk about. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, I think you get uh, you get things that you know, like most people haven't thought about as yet. Um, but that's really great. I'm just trying. Um, and in typical treatment, so from from the time someone you know is referred to you, is there a typical process that that they would normally um, go through therapy with you? Well, I normally spend the first session understanding if we can work together. It's like the session where we choose each other, right? Mm. 
and I understand if, if, if I can help them and they understand if I can help them. Um, and it's so the first time we normally talk about the reasons that bring them to therapy and the symptoms. Then if we do decide to start working together, we spend a few sessions actually, you know, um, telling the story, right? So I ask everyone to tell me their story. And I know that some therapists do it, some other therapists don't. But for me, uh, and this is very personal, it's very important. It really helps me have um, all the information I need uh, there. Um, it, it, it's, it's a guidance for me. It's very important. And I like that because, you know, it helps people put that story together. Some people, you know, they've done therapy in the past, so they're more aware. But for those who are at their first experience, uh, it's so crucial to put that narrative together so that they can actually see it as such, as a narrative, as a story. And it can be very powerful because, you know, many people come to therapy and they say, this is my goal, this is what I want to achieve. And after they tell the story, they realize, oh, wait, there's this and that and that, and I didn't know. Because, of course, when that happens, when they tell the story, it's already psychotherapy, that the process has started. And so I point things out, we talk about the emotions. And so it's a learning process for them. And that's actually the very first phase of therapy, if you will, to raise that awareness, to, to get to know those patterns, those beliefs, those emotions. And once people are more aware, we can actually work on changing them. Mm. Mm. The rest of therapy is very much focused in the way I work on the present moment. So every time I would ask, you know, how you feel, what's present for you. Sometimes there's something that there's more, uh, there's more urgency, sometimes not. But it's always working on whatever is present for you in the here and now in this session. Mm. Yeah, that's actually really powerful as well. Um, and I think, I mean... Uh, yeah, I think in the world that we live at at the moment, I mean, it's quite quite difficult, you know. Like, and I think people are always seeking out help, uh, you know, whether they want to, they they don't. Sometimes they're forced to as well. You know, their partner says you have to go into therapy or else, uh, you know. So <laughs> happens. I did think of another question, and I, I do want to ask it. It's like uh, COVID, like oh, yes. how has that? I mean, what was your experience through it, and how have you seen you know people? and maybe even patients changing you know through that well COVID has changed a lot of lives in many ways right and i think that we um all have learned something from it and i can definitely see it um with my clients i think that most people have changed something about their lives it's been a cathartic experience for many mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, of course, very impactful. We all know that. Mm. But for those people, at least, you know, who were in therapy, I've noticed that they use that experience to learn something about themselves. Okay. That's very inspiring, you know, yeah. to, to, to have that. Um, I think everyone remembers it, you know, it's right. You know, it's very recent still fresh isn't it yeah it does um and uh, you know the the feedback i've had from many people is that you know we're still dealing with almost the consequences of that time it was a it was quite a traumatic you know mm -hmm. i won't say a moment it was like almost like a phase it was a traumatic phase and then you know like even now you know people are still learning to deal with it someone was telling me recently for instance um you know because lots of people got to work from home but now many people are forced to get back to the office and even that is traumatic. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm not ready to get back into the office, although it's two or three years later, you know, people are like, no, you know, I'm not ready for that. Um, so I think we're still dealing with the consequences in many ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm. Um, I love this conversation. Uh, you know, obviously we can go into much more detail. I just get that sense. You know, we can you know speak a lot more about breath work and pranayama. But I think the point of this was just to introduce it and also to introduce the concept and you know how re how it relates to you know changing the narrative as well, which I think is a is an equally you know powerful concept. Is there anything, Francesca, that that you thought I should have asked you that I didn't? You know, around those three topics. What an interesting question <laughs> to think <laughs> about it. Mm. Um, nothing comes to mind. Um, 
Well, maybe just just there's something I'd like to add in the sense that we had briefly touched on this before, but I think you know when you talked about prioritizing oneself, um, that's probably what I'd like to say to conclude and maybe link everything we've said today so far. I think that you know I see self care as a lifestyle. One of the questions that people ask me, they ask me, you know, when does therapy end? When will I feel better? When, you know, will I be happy? And the bottom line is, it's a work in progress. And there's never, you know, of course, there is uh, an end to therapy that's actually very important to support people in being independent. Ultimately, we don't wake up one day and we're healed. That's, you know, also a limiting belief. People think that when they come to therapy, it, the progress is like this. They think it's like linear and they keep, one keeps progressing. But actually, what I've learned myself is that it's a bumpy road. It is a bumpy road. And especially when you go to therapy, you know, well, in Italy, we may be very, uh, we, we, we say that you go down to hell in the beginning. And sorry, now I'm thinking to Dante and to uh, the Divine Comedy, but we use that as an expression. It's descending, right, in, in to hell because it's as if you actually decide to go and have a look at everything you have decided to put on the side your whole life, right? So it's very difficult. And yes, then you start to feel better, but then life happens and we... We need to, to know that it's a bumpy road and we need to, not to have that expectation that it's just going to be progress all the time. And that's why, coming back to where I started, self-care is a lifestyle. And whether you are in therapy or not, you always need to take care of yourself and you need to use the tools that you have learned through therapy and in your daily life. And it's not that when you stop therapy, then, you know, I'm healed and nothing more. I don't have to do anything else. It's 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 a constant way of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love how you said it. Um, you know what? What I always remember with it is, um, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, like just my own experience is that is it's life itself is constantly changing. So I mean, if, you know, being where we are right now, we've never done that because it's the first time we experiencing this moment. And it's changed around us. And there was a movie a long time ago. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen it in, you know, on any one of the, you know, the like Netflix or anything, but it was called Dark City, I think it was. And in the, in the movie, you know, like things always change around them. You know, they like in New York City, but you know, the whole buildings kind of always change around them. I always feel like that with life. You know, yeah. like, you know, it's always changing. A good analogy. You know, so, so when you ask the question, you know, like, when is it going to be done? It's like asking, when is life, life going to be done? Because yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's like, a, you, it can never be done. Just like with life, you know, when it's done, it's done. But every moment is, every experience is something new. And it's not like, you know, once you've done therapy, you've got the blueprint now and everything is going to be smooth sailing. So exactly. I like how you said that too. And, you know, also people underestimate how much they actually change. Uh, people think that they never change, but actually they do. Research shows that. And uh, one of the questions that sometimes I'm asked, I've, I've been asked is, when am I going to be back to my old self? When, when, when will I be my old self again? Well, guess what? You'll never be your old self again because the new experience needs to be integrated and that creates a new self. So mm. it's, yeah, there's a bit of a loss to process there. Mm. That is, uh, that is an interesting, uh, you know, point that you mentioned, you know, the whole loss aspect, because lots of people don't realize, you know, you have to grieve those things. Yeah. You know, most psychologists actually use, um, they always use dragonflies or butterflies, you know, like as part of their imaging, you know, and to show, you know, like the change in life kind of aspects, I'm assuming, you know, uh, but it's the same kind of thing is once you move past the one phase of life, you know, to the next phase, it's actually a next phase, you know, you can't go back to the cocoon, or to the caterpillar. It's not, not Yes. And sometimes I use the analogy of making a cake, right? When you make a cake, let's say you got flour, you got eggs, you got butter, what else do you have sugar, right? And you have all the ingredients laid out on the table, then you make the cake. And even if you want to, you can't undo it and have the ingredients back on the table. Mm. 
Mm. That's what we call transformation. Mm. I've learned this beautiful analogy from one of my uh, yogi teachers, and I think she's absolutely right. We cannot undo the cake. Mm, Does really, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes uh, it's a it's a lot more tangible than you know my. <laughs> <laughs> it is very tangible, isn't it? Yeah, and, and a lot more tastier actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love that. Um, on that note, I'm very honored to have you on. Uh, I love this conversation. It was absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Oliver. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned, and we'll speak to you in the next episode.